This episode of Indie Film Weekly is sponsored by Musicbed. Musicbed believes everyone should have access to great music in their projects, regardless of their budget or workflow. That's why they just announced their all-new membership program, the first music licensing subscription of its kind, releasing this summer. Membership is here to make their world-class roster of artists and composers available for all of your projects. Membership will give you unlimited access to a majority of Musicbed's artists, all at a flat monthly or yearly rate based on the types of films you make. And if you still want single-use licenses, they're not going anywhere. Membership is just a new option to make music licensing work better for your workflow. Be one of the first to learn more at musicbed.com membership. And don't forget, you can still get 20% off your next on-site license with coupon code IndieFilmWeekly20. That's IndieFilmWeekly20 at musicbed.com. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no-film school podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Eric Lures. I'm John Fusco. It's May 10th, 2018, and on this week's show, the Cannes Film Festival kicks off, the Academy gets tough, why 8K is A-OK, can your short really be a calling card, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and weekly words of wisdom. Hello, everybody from downtown Brooklyn, New York. We are here, as always, to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. So the Cannes Film Festival is in full effect and full swing this week. Uh, We decided not to attend because they actually have a selfie ban imposed this year. No selfies, no us. No selfies, so we decided not to go because if you're not going to take photos of yourself, why do it? Like like if there's no selfies, it didn't actually happen. Exactly. Uh, Led by this year's jury head, Kate Blanchett, fellow jury members for this year's festival included uh, Kristen Stewart, Ava DuVernay, Denis Villeneuve, and Chang Chen, and they all met with the press on Tuesday to discuss the weightier, heavier, big-picture topics currently facing the industry and, of course, how changes can be made to better them. Topics included the Time's Up movement and the always lacking amount of female directors in competition, for which Blanchett noted, Would I like to see more films by women in competition? Absolutely. The films by women in the festival are not there because of their gender, but because of the quality of their work. We will be assessing them as filmmakers, as we should be. On the topic of streaming versus theatrical exhibition of feature films, otherwise known this year as the Netflix versus Cannes debate, uh, was addressed by Ava DuVernay, stating, It's important to be inclusive about the ways we experience a film, whether in a theater or not. It's still film. The industry is grappling with the question. A film is a story being told by a filmmaker, and the way the film is presented to an audience has no bearing on whether or not it's a film. I should jump in and say it's notable that it was DuVernay that made this statement of all people since her film 13th, the documentary, was, you know, funded and um, distributed exclusively by Netflix. Exactly, yeah. So she has kind of a stake in the game. Absolutely. And it was a theatrical run as well, I think, for that. And they got nominated for an Academy Award uh, because of that. Um, And speaking of Netflix versus Ken, the very public back and forth feud may be arriving at some level of a compromise uh, with Netflix CEO Reed Hastings admitting this week, we love Ken. We've been many years here and have buyers going this year. They are very sincere at finding a model that works for them and us. Speaking of the festival, as we become part of the pay TV, we need to figure out how to work within the systems. 
Regulation is critical to order. There is great regulation that is very useful, and it's up to us in every country to participate and follow those regulations. Uh, that's, of course, referring to certain regulations regarding when something can stream, how long the waiting period is between a theatrical release and a streaming uh, debut in, in France. The rules, regulations are somewhat different there. Uh, in an ironic twist of fate, the opening night film Everybody Knows from director Oscar Ferrardi and starring Javier Bardem and Penelope Cruz has interested several distributors looking to acquire the film. And one top contender, according to Variety, is Netflix. Wow. They, so maybe they will have the opening night film after all, just not the time it premiered. A Variety reports that uh, other distributors have also expressed interest in buying U.S. and global territories prior to the movie's premiere this past Tuesday night, but that Netflix is very much in the running. That would be somewhat hilarious and a fitting conclusion to this year's Netflix can back and forth. I feel like Reed Hastings made this whole big show to like play nice, but is actually just like he's never even seen the movie everybody knows. He just wants to buy it just as like a big, you know. Absolutely. Middle it's a, finger. It's a to statement. Oh, that was good. Is that how you say finger in French? <laughs> no, it's, it's actually droite. Droite, okay. Yeah. That <laughs> word made John uncomfortable. Or, anyway. you know, or I really liked it. You don't know. Now I'm uncomfortable. Speaking of festivals, that's a weird segue. Uh, we'd like to send congrats to Kim Yutani, who was just named the new director of programming at Sundance. Yutani was already a senior programmer with the festival, but now she'll be replacing Trevor Groth, who had held the role since 2009 until earlier this year when he announced that he was leaving for a position at the film financing company 30 West. And then one more thing about Cannes is oh. that this came out earlier today. Uh there was still a legal battle going on as to whether or not The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, which is Terry Gilliam's movie that's been like in an ongoing, he's been trying to make it for, I guess, like 20 or 30 years now, maybe more. And it's the closing night film at Cannes, or it was supposed to be the closing night film at Cannes, but they didn't even know like if it was legally going to be allowed to be played at Cannes. Because, you mean Don Quixote? Yeah, sorry, Don Quixote. Oh. Um, I don't know how to speak, whatever mm-hmm. French okay, or whatever. The Man of La Mancha. Yeah, the Man of French? La Mancha. Really? That it's guy, Spanish. That okay, guy on the horse. Moving on. Uh, and <laughs> so like, they were still ongoing in a legal battle up until this morning. Uh, Cannes wasn't even sure if it would be the closing night film, but they were like making the... Uh, necessary like compromises, I guess, to work with Terry Gilliam uh, in case it did <laughs> clear its legal battle. Uh, and it did this morning. So it will officially be the closing night film at Cannes. I'm looking forward to that. If you should also check out Lost in La Mancha, the documentary that he made about 10 to 15 years ago about, trying to get it started yeah. with Johnny Depp, I think, in the lead role at the yeah. time. Uh, it has somewhat of a cursed film audit uh, reputation, but it's good that it's finally And now it's finally happening. happening yeah. So. Maybe we will go. It's still time to make it the closing night. Yeah, congratulations, Terry. We're on our way. And now, for the ongoing story I love to hate, it's time for Creepy Dude Corner here on the podcast. I thought that was my <laughs> corner. I thought that's the Is corner. That, I, I am referring to this podcasting booth. No, I'm not. Thank goodness. I just have to take a side note before I get into the super creeps um, to say how fortunate I feel to work with some really solid good dudes in the industry. Some. I don't know if they're the ones in this room, but some. Anyhow, this week, Creepy Dude Corner features Bill Cosby 
and Roman Polanski, who have both been booted from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences as of the most recent Board of Governors meeting, which was held last week. You may remember that the Academy expelled Harvey Weinstein last year under the same new standards of conduct argument. I think this latest development in particular shows how far the Academy has moved on these issues because Roman Polanski was awarded a Best Directing Oscar for The Pianist back in 2002 after having to leave the country to avoid sentencing when he pleaded guilty to drugging and raping a 13-year-old girl. Again, he won the Oscar from the Academy after the guilty plea. So due to presumably the same issues, Polanski's latest film based on a true story, which was slated for release this year by Sony Pictures Classics, has been shelved. Polanski's attorney told Vanity Fair that he's going to appeal the decision, claiming it's not fair. You know what's really not fair? Like non-consensual sex, just saying. It's true. And how, how can you appeal? And I, I don't I don't know. Like, it's not like right. it's, it's not, not a, a legal decision. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like, I, I that guess was interesting you're too. invited to take part. I, I don't know if when you win an Academy Award, you automatically become a member or something. Like, I don't know what his case would be, what his fight would be in that, but... I think he's saying he wasn't given a chance to defend himself. But, I mean, that's what happened in court. Like, yeah. Anywho, uh, Bill Cosby, on the other hand, was just officially found guilty of sexual assault last week. But detailed accusations uh, against him have existed for years. The Academy Board hasn't released a list of who else they're investigating under the new standards of conduct. But I suspect the old herd will continue to thin and make room for more people who aren't scumbags. Of course, we can't have Creepy Dude Corner without another mention of the president of the Creeps Club, Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> it's not a funny issue, but man, it's like they're just it's like sometimes you just have to laugh because it's all just so insane. There was a bunch of news on this front this week, one being that the sale of the Weinstein Company and its considerable catalog was finally finalized. The winning bid was made by Lantern Capital, which has zero experience in the entertainment field. The purchase was apparently disappointing to Weinstein's victims, some of whom backed a rival bid that would have included a $30 million payout to the accusers. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to the Weinstein Company Library from here. Meanwhile, New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, who'd been one of the people working hardest to prosecute Weinstein for his various crimes, himself stepped down from office on Monday night after several women accused him of physical assault. So it looks like this segment of the show won't be disappearing anytime soon. The saving grace for me against the creeps in our business are all the wonderful, creative, and colorful people. And sadly, we just lost one yesterday. Yeah, so legendary editor Anne V. Coates passed away at the age of 92 in Woodland Hills, Los Angeles. Coates first worked as an assistant editor on The Red Shoes in 1948 and then went on to have such a prosperous career herself as the lead editor before going on to win an Academy Award for editing David Lean's Lawrence of Arabia and received subsequent Oscar nominations for Beckett, The Elephant Man, In the Line of Fire, and Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight uh, before receiving an honorary Oscar in 2016. Regarding In the Line of Fire, which was a Clint Eastwood film from 1993, I believe, uh, The Hollywood Reporter noted that the film was among the first to put an actor from another film into a new movie. So Clint Eastwood, from his Dirty Harry days, was placed between President John F. Kennedy and his wife at Love Field in Dallas in a scene in In the Line of Fire. Uh, Additional titles Coates edited included Murder on the Orient Express, Chaplin, Aaron Brockovich, Personal favorites, what about Bob and Masters of the Universe? I, I was going through her IMDb uh, profile today uh, to say nothing of striptease, of course, in, in Congo. 
Uh, she continued to work well into her 80s, with her final edited work being Fifty Shades of Grey in 2015, which I guess you could say means she went out with a bang. Oh. Now, now I, uh, sorry, Anne. We miss you. We love you. Uh, really great career and very, very diverse titles and work. Yeah. Actually, I feel like she would have liked that joke. She seemed like really salty Yeah. Um, in a good way. She, not only was she an extremely accomplished editor, but apparently she was like a real spitfire, too. We have a write-up on the site of an amazing talk she gave at a Sight, Sound, and Story event just a couple years ago when she was already 91. She kind of talked shit about everybody she worked with in the talk. But in doing so, she she basically talked about problem solving and she shared all sorts of useful editing techniques for introducing characters, using diegetic sound, adapting to improv, and more. And we will uh, link to that post also in the podcast post today. I feel like all editors are kind of salty. Is that is that something that I'm wrong about? Because I'm just starting to really get into the industry. But like, and no, 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 uh, uh, you know, if you're an editor, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Uh, I'm just saying like, I feel like it's part of the job is that they have to be like stubborn and like, insistent on the changes that they're making and it kind of crosses over <laughs> in a way into well, they also spend an awful lot of time in like a dark room yeah exactly alone. yes um but i find it can go in my experience either way so either they're like very shy and sort of like put their head down and just like work because that's you know that kind of work suits them where they don't have to interact with the whole crew for example or they're more like you said like I'm an editor. You're in my world now, baby. Right. You know, you might be the director, but <laughs> listen to me kind yeah, of a thing. The movie's in my hands. Which, like, can be, you know, if they're good at their job, can be wonderful. Totally. But, yeah, you still have to be able to tolerate each other. Yeah, and I guess what that's why you see certain collaborations between, like, Velma Schumacher and Scorsese and stuff, because I feel like that role, relationship between the director and the editor is so... Uh, fragile maybe at times and very personal that yeah. when an editor like Andy Coates for example seems to be working with a lot of different directors too it feels like that's kind of like a very different thing than kind of having the same pairing up with the same director that's I'm interesting sure. has Scorsese worked with anyone other than Schumacher do you know probably not yeah no he has mm. he, he worked a lot with uh, um, George Lucas's first wife uh, Marsha Lucas actually oh. Oh, and, right, because you were reading the book. Yeah, like she edited a ton of his movies when he was first starting out. Um, and like she actually would like pressure George into making movies that were more like Scorsese because like she oh, thought I bet that, that went over well. I mean, you know, like she thought that George Lucas was focusing too much on like commercial movies and mm. wanted him to be making like arty movies like Scorsese. So. Speaking of which, I saw King of Comedy for the first time last night, and it is awesome. I've been waiting for so long to see that movie. It's finally on Amazon Prime, uh, so you can watch it for free if you have it. Good to know. I meant to mention at the top of the show that I saw Avengers Infinity War, but we got so excited and got right into the news. They both star Jerry Lewis. Yeah, no, they're really <laughs> similar. No, I just mentioned it because it feels like, okay, summer. this is my time to mention the weather because, you know, that's what I do. Summer blockbuster season is is officially here. Are you going to ask me how I liked it? I thought you told me you didn't see it. I haven't seen it. No. And also, I know you won't answer <laughs> because you're obstinate. Contra I'm contrary. I'm a contrarian. You're contrarian. I will tell you all, in case you were wondering, this is a total diversion from our news, but quickly... Um, if you listen to the show, you know that I uh, am a fan of comic book movies. I lean toward the Marvel Universe over DC... But this one, I don't know. Maybe it bears repeated viewing because for even for me, it was like too much. 
every Marvel character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is in this movie, and it's it's a little tricky to to wrap your head around. Um, but it's fun. I'd see it again. And just like if you haven't seen it, like I have for two weeks. Of, I guess like avoid reading any comment on any post on social media anywhere <laughs> because there are trolls out there who like I was I was looking at like a base like an MLB Instagram post and like reading the comments on it and then I get to like the fourth comment and it's like all these people oh, are the sh- ones don't that say anything. Well, like people yeah. know yeah, that yeah, yeah. something is going to happen yeah, but like yeah. you know he like just spoiled the whole thing yeah. just because he's an asshole and those people exist oh, i will actually bring it back around to on a positive note though that once you have seen it there's an amazing other podcast called happy sad confused that um interviews it's like a spoilers episode it goes in a deep dive the deepest interview i've ever heard with the directors about like how they pulled this crazy feat of filmmaking off and it's so good and very no film schooly so i recommend checking out the avengers infinity war episode of happy sad confused anyways let's talk about gear news with charles hayne hello everybody this is charles hayne i'm here with gear news or tech news technology news uh here at indie film weekly for may 10th 2018 so first up i can't believe we're still talking about nab but honestly, NAB really is that big. And one of the things that happens in the weeks after NAB is professionals start finding time to like edit and upload all of the presentations that go on there. And we finally get time to breathe and watch them. So articles might still come about like stuff that was presented at NAB but that didn't like make the rounds yet. And I can't promise this is even going to be the last NAB story. But we're a month from NAB, so it probably is. This week, LumaForge started launching videos from their Faster Together conference, which happened in a back room at NAB. And they kicked off with a big one, Michael Cioni, founder of LightIron, VP of Innovation at Panavision, talking about the rhythm of resolution. Meaning that there's like every couple years, we seem to up our resolution pattern and there is a rhythm to it. Uh, We were standard def for a very long time. And then came HD and then 4K, and Chioni is arguing that there's a rhythm, which means that 8K will follow. So I personally have been a high-resolution delivery skeptic. I do get why you might want to capture high-resolution. It makes sense. A bit of reframing and stabilization in post is nice, and if you like capture in 6K and 8K for a 1080p finish, you've got a little room. I never think it's quite as much room as other people do. Like when you shoot 8K for 1080 finish, I don't think you can zoom in to 400% without quality loss. I notice it because you're using underbared footage and then you're going into a narrower part of the lens that wasn't designed for that. But I do think you can zoom in like 15 to 20% and that can give you a lot of benefits. So I totally get it. But on the delivery side, more than 1080p hasn't made much sense to me since honestly Like, I work pretty regularly on a 20-foot screen, and I will, like, switch that between a pure 4K pipeline source going in 4 SDI to the projector and then a 1080 source going in 1080. And I have trouble seeing the difference. Other people have trouble seeing the difference on a 20-foot screen. And, like, we do this for a living. So sometimes I'm like, I don't know how excited I am about 4K delivery. And then, like, we saw 8K monitors at NAB. And they were big, and they were maybe sharper 
than a 4K monitor, maybe more resolution or information, but I'm not sure I'm sold. So, the argument Chioni makes here is an interesting one. He argues it's going to happen regardless, so why not work with it to do cool stuff? One of his proposals is that, like, for instance, reframing after delivery, which has, like, huge benefits for live events, right? You're watching a sporting event and, you know, the camera person hasn't gotten as close as you want to get on something. And at home, you could then do the rest of the zoom in. If they're sending you an 8K signal, you could do the final 50% zoom in on the part of the frame you want to see. So for sports, for politics, for news, there's all sorts of applications there that could be really cool and could maybe even like change the way we frame and edit on set if we know people are going to be doing that in post. Uh the talk from Chioni is really fascinating. There's a lot of fun historical insight, including what it was like when they were pioneering 4K finish a decade ago, which a decade ago was like a huge technical feat. And it really points that in the near future, it's very likely we're all going to be shooting 6K to give ourselves like an extra bit of stabilization room and still make an 8K master. And uh, it's definitely a, a talk worth a look. Uh, next up, one of the marquee features of Resolve 15, which was announced in beta at NAB, is that there's now full integration of DCP authoring in Resolve Studio. Now, with a single click, you can straight up author a DCP. We tested it. We went to Nighthawk Cinema to play it back. Thank you, Nighthawk. And it works perfectly. The color transform from Rec. 709 to DCIP3 looked accurate. The color tones were pleasing. I, I even had some like color charts in there, and they looked right. We're very satisfied with our results. However, there's one part of the process that Resolve still doesn't handle, and that's formatting your hard drive to EXT, which is the Linux format, which is required for DCP drives. Let's back up a second. DCP, for those of you who've been lucky enough to avoid it, is how you're going to end up delivering your movies to theaters and festivals. And it stands for Digital Cinema Package. It's basically the format you have to be in to show on a movie theater screen. This format means putting your movie in a specially formatted drive, and that format is an older 1990s Linux format, EXT3. You can't deliver a DCP on an Apple formatted drive, and yes, technically you can deliver NTFS, the Windows standard, we recommend against it since sometimes it doesn't work. So there are a few options to solve this, but we just did a field test with by far the easiest and most filmmaker focused, which is a piece of software called DCP Transfer. It allows not only formatting your external drive into the right DCP format, it'll also verify your DCP on that drive, which is going to reduce the number of times you hear from a theater that the drive wasn't organized correctly. Also awesome for filmmakers, they offer a one-month license, which is perfect for, like, you're an indie filmmaker, you're delivering movies to theaters once a year or every other year, you don't want to pay for it year-round, you can do a one-month, author your movie, make a couple copies to send to festivals and theaters, and then not have to pay for it the next month, which is a very nice feature. They are clearly filmmakers themselves and have been through the process, so check it out. Last up, DJI has updated their Phantom 4 Pro to version 2. The Phantom occupies sort of like an interesting niche in the DJI lineup. The Spark and the Mavic are their like super affordable, foldable, take anywhere units that are under a thousand bucks and produce footage that's like getting shockingly good. You're not going to see it in a Hollywood movie, but let's be honest, you have definitely seen footage from a Mavic Pro in a music video recently, maybe even a lower budget commercial. 
the Mavic puts out like surprisingly good footage in the right environment. Of course, if you're trying to get cinema quality footage, you're either putting like an Alexa and a Matrix, or if you want an integrated camera drone, which has a lot of benefits and stabilization and other things, you're going with something like the Inspire, which the newest version, the Inspire 2, you can shoot ProRes, you can shoot RAW, you can shoot ProRes RAW. That's sort of the top of the line. In the middle, between the two, because the Inspire is like a $5,000 party all in, um, you know, in the 1500 to two grand range, there's some options on this platform called the Phantom, which is sort of interesting because, like, the image quality is definitely better than the Mavic, but the price point's better than the Inspire 2. It doesn't, like, fold up. It's sort of an older-looking body, so it doesn't feel, like, as cool as the newer ones. But you have seen a lot of footage from the Phantom. The Phantom is a really great place to be if you are like, I want to have a Phantom for doing some drone work, but I'm not going to be a full-time pro drone person. It's been very popular. So the Phantom Pro uh, is sort of a really great, like, first you buy Spark and you crash it a bunch, then you buy a Mavic and you crash it less often, less often, and then maybe you look at a Phantom and maybe you only crash your Phantom once or twice. The biggest improvement filmmakers are going to care about here is 100 megabit per second H.265 video. So H.265 is a total bear to process in post, although the newest Apple computers are getting like hardware to make that easier. But H.265 is a popular capture format, best known maybe for like the GH5, which is H.265 10-bit 42 internal. And the reason why it's popular for capture is that you can get really great image quality at a much smaller file size than H.264. Uh, image quality is objective, but there's some tests that show that, like, with H.265, you could get the image quality of a 200 megabit per second image for only 100 megabit per second. This is really great, since it means, you know, H.265 at 100 megabits per second, you can shoot twice as much video than you could at H.264 200 megabits. So it's very exciting to have this sort of sweet spot in data and capture in the Phantom Pro version 2. Um, that, along with some obstacle sensing improvements, some better automatic navigation, six navigation cameras, and some improvements in the lens design, make this like more of an incremental update. But it's really cool to see that DJI is continuing to refine the Phantom platform, which does sort of sit in like a nice middle ground of like just barely affordable, but some really nice footage comes out of it without having to go all the way to Inspire 2 prices. I will see everybody next week. And this week for Ask No Film School, I got a question emailed to me personally from Alfred Peterson, who's a writer who's thinking about trying to move into directing and is a bit concerned about the reality of using a short film as a calling card to land potential jobs. Quote, I've recently had thoughts about trying to direct something I've written, he starts. The thing is, this is a screenplay for a short, and I've recently heard someone say that shorts are no longer viable as calling cards, as ways to make a name for yourself and get jobs. So with that in mind, he asks, one, do you agree that shorts are no longer viable as a way of breaking in? And two, if you don't, how does it typically happen that someone starts a career via a short? So as someone who has just made a short or is like in the process of making a short, my answer might be a little bit biased here in that I'm hoping that I'm right. But I have to say that to answer your first question and negate the second question entirely, I'm going to go ahead and say, no, I completely disagree that shorts are no longer viable as means into the business. 
Now, I'm not sure where you heard that or how reputable the person is that said it, but if you're not making shorts, I think the better question is, how else do you expect to be discovered? The bottom line is, you have to create something if you want to get noticed. The more realistic phrase may be, you have to create multiple things if you want to get noticed. A single short may not be a viable way of breaking into the business, but multiple successful shorts definitely is. In order to prove yourself as a director, you need to have a pool of projects to show potential clients, managers, etc. And you have to keep creating and putting your stuff out there either on the internet or in festivals until you get noticed. Also, neither is a holy space in that regard. It used to be that festivals wouldn't accept your work if it was online, but that's not the case anymore. So you can use both platforms for maximum exposure. Now, I'd say my answer mostly comes from just having conducted a few interviews with short filmmakers, and I'd say I'm especially drawing from an interview I did with Daniels and Kirsten Lepore at South by Southwest titled How to Get a Vimeo Staff Pick with Daniels, Kirsten Lepore, and head curator Sam Morrill. Daniels, as you may know, are a pair of directors who started off exclusively making weird, experimental, comedic shorts, and then their first feature, Swiss Army Man, premiered at Sundance three years ago, where it won the Grand Jury Prize. And Swiss Army Man is very much in the vein of what their shorts were. In Daniels' case, they made shorts with the internet in mind, which in turn led to a ton of recognition, music video gigs, their most famous was for Little John's Turn Down for What, which is a now going to be like a legendary music video, which in turn led to brands actually seeing their videos online and reaching out to them directly to create content for them, which led to them seeing more money. It also can't be said that while they may have made these shorts for their own fun to release online, they wouldn't have also been quote unquote serious enough to have been accepted into festivals if they'd chosen to submit there. This whole time they were doing that, however, they were also working on their feature as well, which included submitting and being selected to the Sundance Screenwriters Labs. All of these factors worked together, which led to them breaking in. I'm not sure if there ever was a time that making one short meant you could break in. You just got to keep putting work out there and eventually hope that something will stick. Other recent films that came straight from shorts include Whiplash, Thunder Road, Turbo Kid, Baba Duke, Napoleon Dynamite, I could go on. There are a ton. There is one more I will mention, which is Ryan Koo's own short, Amateur, which we actually did an entire podcast on called How Do You Turn a Short into a Feature? This will be tremendously helpful in illustrating the value of a short as a proof of concept for a feature. So I guess I would say, don't expect to break in on your first try, but use the whole experience as a way to further your career because breaks don't happen without a lot of hard work in creating the circumstances in which it could happen. If your movie plays at a festival, sure, be cognizant of the fact that there could be a manager or someone there that takes an interest in you or your work and could potentially sign you on to represent you, but also be looking for filmmakers and crew members who could potentially be helping you out on your next project. A manager can really only do so much for you without having a reel or some work to show to prospective hirers, but collaborators are invaluable and could end up helping you throughout your entire career. So one final piece of advice, maybe what's stripping you up is the concept of, quote, creating a calling card, especially so early in your career. For now, just make the things that you want to make and don't try to buy into what you think might get you a job. Authenticity is the most important and alluring factor of any short film, and ultimately it's what will end up winning you both awards and attention. And that's all I got for you.
Thank Thanks. you for your question. Yeah. Thanks, John. I, I would also add that the same advice you gave pretty much applies to documentaries. Might as well start with shorts for so many reasons that we could go into, but it's there's nothing bad that could come out of doing a short. It's going to be of value to you in some way or another, whether it's as that specific calling card or or something else. So Yeah, and I mean, I'd be interested in hearing if anyone who disagrees could like let us know what how else to you know start getting directing jobs because that's a pretty (laughs) a lot of getting those directing jobs and just like ascending to that level immediately just seems like an impossible task or well i think you hit the nail on the head so traditionally you would have gotten the directing job by working your way up to director by having been you know a pa and then like an ap and then an assistant director and then whatever um but you know, like you said, in a way, this whole conversation negates our question because these days you just don't have to do that anymore. Although the onset experience is valuable, you can make and distribute your short, you know, entirely on your own. And it's just in a, a whole different landscape than it used to be. Yeah. And he's a writer. So like, I don't really, ass- I'm just assuming that maybe he doesn't want to go that route in terms of like learning what it is like to be on set and learning all those different positions and having to climb up the hierarchy but it's still a totally viable way sure to like get noticed um it's just and and it's valuable too because you're learning all these things about like being on set and one doesn't preclude the other you can be making your shorts and working yeah totally so you know that's another thing that you could do um but that still doesn't you know negate my answer that shorts are still valuable as a calling card to you know make a career of a director a writer director especially well good luck alfred sent us your short when it's done and now for some excellent indie films you can watch this week or weekend first up is one october coming to vod on may 11th this is a new documentary from director rachel schumann and executive produced by academy award nominee ed norton Rachel's a documentary filmmaker and editor who's worked in New York City for 20 years. Her directorial debut, Negotiations, premiered at the 2005 Tribeca Film Festival. She co-directed Art, Architecture, and Innovation, celebrating the Guggenheim Museum, which aired on PBS and is now on view at the museum. But this film was filmed entirely in the October of 2008, a time when gentrification was rapidly displacing the working and middle classes, Wall Street was plummeting, and then-Senator Barack Obama was making his first presidential bid. The film is a lyrical time capsule that captures the heart and spirit of New York City. When seen from our current vantage point, it foreshadows the roiling political upheaval spreading across the country today. This captivating feature documentary chronicles intrepid WFMU radio host Clay Pigeon, which, I mean, that name is amazing, as he talks. <laughs> he's so not just, a drugstore. Just so we're clear, last week I got very confused about a certain puppet uh, film. It's just what I sh- His name is Clay Pigeon. He's not Clay the Pigeon. Or a pigeon made of clay. Right. Okay. Just on the record, it's a man named Clay Pigeon. So back to <laughs> back to one October, <laughs> a clay pigeon is <laughs> no. So seriously, this guy um, is a radio host, and in the film, he's talking to a beautifully diverse cross section of people throughout New York City, exploring a microcosm of themes and issues, including race, religion, economics, politics, and culture. Haven't seen it yet, but it sounds really interesting, especially if you're a New Yorkophile like me. 
And another New York-based film is coming to VOD on May 15th. It's called Landing Up, and it's the directorial debut from Danny Tenenbaum. And it features his wife, Stacy Malton, who also is the producer and writer of the film, in the lead role. It's a story that features two female friends, played by Malton and Adina Hines, living on the streets of New York, and their troubled world changes when one finds love. While the film tackles important issues like homelessness, it also, sadly, was Adina Hines' last on-screen performance before her tragic murder on the streets of New York, just a month after production wrapped on the film. You probably don't know this, but Hines was actually Morgan Freeman's granddaughter. So the filmmakers hope to honor her memory by sharing her artistry with the world. They have mixed feelings about bringing it to light, but they know that she would have wanted the film to have an audience. So they're moving forward and honoring her in the best way they can. In Landing Up, Chrissy who's played by Stacy, does everything she can to hide that she's living on the streets. And in their research for the film, Malton and Tenenbaum interviewed people at homeless shelters in New York. Their biggest surprise was that so many people that were homeless didn't actually appear to be in a stereotypical kind of way. They looked like you or me, the filmmaker said. They wanted to show another perspective on homelessness. Not everyone is who or what you think. And Danny and Stacy are going to be writing a post for No Film School to coincide with the release about um, the intricacies of shooting in New York and how you sort of get around all the bureaucracy of that. So look out for it on nofilmschool.com. And premiering on Hulu on May 11th is Into the Fade, which is from Germany and was unanimously considered one of 2017's best foreign films. And it actually won Best Foreign Picture at the Golden Globes. Directed by Fateh Akin, Diane Kruger won an award at last year's Cannes Film Festival for her performance as Katja, a woman whose life collapses after the death of her husband and son in a bomb attack. After a time of mourning and injustice, Katja seeks revenge, and I believe we actually have an interview with the DP for the film that went up this past December, and we can link to that as well. And premiering on HBO on May 12th is Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, which was perhaps the biggest movie of last year. Christopher Nolan's epic was, of course, nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture and tells the story of allied soldiers from Belgium, the British Empire, and France who are surrounded by the German army and evacuated during a fierce battle in World War II. It stars Tom Hardy, Mark Rylance, Harry Styles, and and many more, actually. It's breathtakingly shot by cinematographer Hoyt Van Hoytema and features some of the most incredible aerial warfare shots in cinematic history. But does it have any clay pigeons? Well, that's what they're shooting at. Yeah, yeah. They're, the clay pigeons are flying into the air. It's like Duck Hunt. Remember that game? Got it. That's pretty much okay, what it is. Okay, thanks for clarifying. Yeah, it's, it's Duck, duck Kirk, Kirk. Oh, no. <laughs> Thank you. And coming out in theaters on May 11th is a movie called Revenge. It's a little French indie that made the rounds of various film festivals around the world last year in their respective midnight sections, including Sundance and TIFF. It's written and directed by Coralie. How do you? How would you say this last name, Eric? Fargate. Fargate. Is that the? Maybe it sounds okay. It sounds French. Okay. Cor- Coralie yes. Fargate. Coralie Fargate. And uh, stars Matilda Anna Ingrid Lutz as a disgraced mistress who hunts down the men who bring her on a guy's getaway only to commit a horrible crime. The film features so much blood that according to the director, the prop team would often run out of the fake blood, which was a problem in the middle of the desert. You got to see the new trailer for this film. I think they have they had like one original trailer and then they found YouTube comments from like very sexist male individuals and they've now taken some of those comments and put it in a new trailer for the film wow yeah it's actually pretty uh it's very much in your face showing how chauvinistic and 
scary some of those online people are. And now moving on to upcoming deadlines for grants and other sort of film funds, events. The Miller Packin Film Fund has a deadline on May 15th. This grant from the Rigovi Foundation will award doc filmmakers between $5,000 to $25,000 for work that addresses social issues and inspires others. The fund is financed through the Rigovi Foundation, and it began granting in 2016. In its first year, grants totaling $150,000 were awarded between 6 and 10 filmmakers, and the fund operates an open call submission process with awards announced biannually. On May 31st, the deadline for the Shift Creative Fund hits. The Shift Creative Fund is a grant program designed to provide up-and-coming filmmakers with the resources they need to develop and deliver a finished narrative short film. It will support four narrative short films with up to $30,000 each year. Selected projects will also receive these benefits that could end up cutting even more costs. Collaboration with award-winning Shift Partners, meaning you can consult with writers, producers, distributors, and post-production experts through each stage of the creative process, access to the Shift Creator Space in Los Angeles, which has meeting rooms, editing bays, computer workstations, interview space, and more, two weeks of access to the Shift Airstream, which is a fully equipped mobile production trailer for off-site or on-the-road production days. That's cool. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. And like a huge money saver. Access to Shift Solutions for streamlined video review and approval. Partnership with the Shift Creative Team in LA for production, post-production, and distribution assistance. And finally, a premiere screening event in Los Angeles for finished films attended by Shift clients and partners. Pretty good all around, I'd say. Holy shift. And uh, there's not a lot of narrative short film grants out there in this one, especially this generous. So uh, if you got something, definitely consider applying for it. So Alfred, who sent in our Ask No Film School question today, this grant is for you. And moving from Los Angeles to other warm climes. The festival deadlines this week include the Miami Short Film Festival, which has a deadline on May 15th, takes place in Miami in November, which is a time when it's starting to get cold. And if you live in a colder area and you might want to get to Miami, uh, this is the late deadline. So get on it, folks. In 2017, filmmakers at the festival represented 31 different countries spanning across a dozen various categories. And in addition to screening more than 80 films, Miami Film Festival hosts excellent seminars and workshops with industry pros. I'm glad you were the one who took that last one on because otherwise we wouldn't have got that like complete climate knowledge. I wouldn't have known. Like, is it really cold in other places in November? Yeah. You know, it's like, I guess it is. So it must be warmer in parts of the world at different times of the year is what you're saying. No one ever tweets that I don't add value to this <laughs> program. True, that is and I true. think the value I add is my that is meteor true. your meteorological meteorological my meteorological value. <laughs> That's true. What's another warm place in November that people could apply to? Yeah. Well, I like to think about Hawaii when I think about vacation destinations and weather. <laughs> and weather. I mean, this is well, great. The, Miami I, and Hawaii. I, I should say I factor weather into every vacation destination. Mm. True. Decision. Not me. That's why I went to Detroit in December. Yeah, I, I don't you do that. Did. I did do He's that. He's not even kidding you. Guys. Yeah, New Year's in Detroit. Let me tell you, it's a Christmas miracle. Next time, consult with your resident meteorologist, Liz Nord, and you'll make a much better decision. So, Eric, are there any film festivals in Hawaii you can tell me there, about? There is. Uh, the Hawaii International Film Festival 
the deadline for that is May 14th, and it takes place in Honolulu, Hawaii, uh, also f- starting on November 8th through the 18th. HIF screens an average of 150 films every year. Among them are documentary shorts and features, showcases exclusive to filmmakers from the Pacific Rim, a focus on Asia and North America, and festival favorites from around the world. HIF was praised by the late Roger Ebert as a launching pad for early films by younger directors and by Entertainment Weekly as a must-attend festival experience. I think we definitely must attend that one in November in Hawaii. We can like split up our time between the Miami one, November 8th through something? No, they're going you go on... to Miami. I go to Miami? I'll be in Hawaii. Okay. I'll, I, I'm, I'll be fine if I never go to Florida again. Fair. So when it says showcases films exclusive to the filmmakers from Pacific Rim. Do they just mean Guillermo del Toro and that other guy? No, they only show that movie Pacific Rim. That's what it means. Over okay. and over yeah. again. <laughs> that's that's the festival. It's the Pacific Rim Film Festival in November. Don't miss it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very diverse lineup this year. It's the same <laughs> film in competition. It's Pacific Rim and Pacific Rim Uprising. <laughs> but if there's going to be a Pacific Rim 2, it will also play there. There is. There is. Yeah, yeah, there Pacific is. Rim Rim Excuse yeah. me. So Pacific they... Rim Uprising is also playing competition for the grand jury prize this year <laughs> stiff competition stiff, yeah. yeah um it's gonna go to one of the two pacific rim movies exactly. though, i think you are really good at math yeah so <laughs> since we're talking about things we're good at i will move on to weekly words of wisdom which you know are all the words that come out of my mouth every week on this show right certainly the ones about weather yes mm. Anywho, these words. I talked about Jason Reitman's new film, Tully, when it opened theatrically last week, but this week I want to share some wisdom that Reitman's father shared with him and that he shared with audiences at a Tribeca talk last month and that I wrote up on a No Film School post that we'll link to in this week's podcast post. If you didn't know, Jason's dad is Ivan Reitman, who produced some of the most beloved American comedies of the last several decades, including everything from the original Ghostbusters to in the late 80s to I Love You Man 20 years later. So, of course, Jason has gotten tons of advice from his dad over the years. One that surprised me, particularly coming from Ivan Reitman, was that a director's goal is less to be funny and more to be true. Uh, which, actually, it's funny because John and... Um, Ryan Koo talked about this very principle on this week's episode of the First Feature podcast, so you'll have to check that out. But anyway, Reitman said that just before he started shooting Thank You for Smoking, his dad, Ivan, said, quote, your barometer for comedy will never be as good as your barometer for truth. So when you're on set, never ask yourself if it's funny. Never ask yourself if it's scary or dramatic. You won't know. But you will know if it's truthful. You'll know if it's honest. So everything, dialogue, clothes, hair, how someone walks in, sitting or standing, where the conversation should end or start. Ask yourself, do you believe that? So Jason Reitman admitted that that's what goes through his head when he's on any set now. And I think it could behoove the rest of us to listen to that and use that same barometer. I I think that, like, you can think something's funny on set, though. I think, like... You know, if you actually genuinely laugh to like a performance that your actor is giving, that's a it's a pretty good indication that it's funny. But again, I guess what's funny to you might not be fun to somebody else. So I think the point was more like not that you you can't know something's funny because like you might think it's funny, of course, but that you can't know if audiences will think it's funny. So what what like so your you can guiding only know principle if it's can be? Yeah. Copy. So that's gonna about wrap it up. I think this week. Uh, next Monday's podcast is going to, we're going to take a jump all the way back to January. 
Um, and it's actually going to be the first of a two-part series uh, about post-production. We have a roundtable discussion that Oakley Anderson Moore led with a bunch of people, a bunch of editors and color graders from films that were all over Sundance, various different films, I think like documentaries and narratives alike, shorts maybe even. Yeah, like a really hearty post-production roundtable. Right, and it's something that we haven't had a roundtable for yet, so uh, it turned out to be a pretty lengthy conversation that we're going to split up into two parts, so it's more uh, digestible for you guys. So yeah, stay tuned for part one of that conversation on Monday. Yeah, and just to elaborate what we were talking about earlier, that episode was recorded when it was very cold. Oh, January. Uh, in January right. in Utah in the mountains. Now, when you go in a higher elevation in the mountains, it will get colder anyway, even in a warmer climate. So it was recorded. It was cold. It's been frozen the last couple months. And now the episode is thought out. John's going to play it, put it together for us, and it's going to be really excellent, very warm. But if, if you listen to a podcast recorded in January and you listen to it in June... Do you still feel cold or no? Stay tuned to the next episode to find out. Meanwhile, you can read about everything we talked about on this week's show in the podcast post associated with this episode at nofilmschool.com, where you can also find lots of articles about the craft of filmmaking, new ones up every single day. And if you want more conversations like this, we're now pumping out three brand new podcasts a week. So look for the No Film School podcast in iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you do happen to be in iTunes, please do take a minute to uh, to rate us and write a little review. It really goes a long way, and it means a lot to us. Um, and, of course, stay in touch. I'm at LizFilm on Twitter. I'm at Eric Lures. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. I think it kind of trips me up that Eric goes before me now because like when he's always like i'm at eric lures i just want to say i'm john fusco and set up my twitter handle right right yeah you're right i I should have had a more creative twitter handle it's just my name yeah but it's easy to remember yeah that's pretty good that's true that's true you got a creative name yeah yeah, you're right maybe i should just change my actual name (laughs) eric with a k i wonder if you haven't been getting tweets because people tweet like e-r-i-c-l-u-r before the e in my last name as well Ooh, like eric lures you into a dark corner a creeps corner yeah 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 maybe i am in a creeps corner anyway folks just so you understand it's e-r-i-k-l-u-e-r-s I'm sure that's the reason why you have not been tweeting at me. We'll be expecting an onslaught of tweets this week. Thank <laughs> you the all record, very much. Yeah. And uh, thanks, guys. See you next week. Turn down for what? Da, 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 da.